welcome to AGG's newest podcast in its podcast series. I wish that I knew what I know now, a conversation with AGG on FDA issues. My name is Kevin Bell. I am a, a partner at AGG, heading up its patent practice, as well as the Dietary Supplements Industry Group, and a chair on the CBD Committee. Um, I'm joined today by uh, Bob Durkin. Bob joined us from FDA approximately a year ago. He is the former deputy director of the Office of Dietary Supplement Programs at FDA. He also has a degree in nuclear pharmacy and a background of 18 years as a regulator and prior to that, um, military. Bob and I today will be discussing how regulatory issues and, and the current framework of regulatory reg- regulations related to natural products overlap with intellectual property strategies and how to monetize intellectual property in conjunction with an appropriate regulatory compliant program. So Bob, I thought I would kick it off to you first since we're in your wheelhouse as a former regulator on natural products and dietary supplements. Maybe you could kind of lay out the landscape, if you will, related to dietary ingredients and dietary supplements. Uh, Yeah, thank you, Kevin, very much. Regulatory landscape as it, as it applies to dietary ingredients and dietary supplements is, is dominated by the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act. Essentially, that worked to separate dietary ingredients and dietary supplements from food additives. It was meant to make consumers' access to natural, wholesome ingredients easier. It was intended to empower consumers to make choices towards the wellness market to and you know, empower and uh, enable them to take care of their own health and well-being. Um, dietary ingredients are required to satisfy certain aspects of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. They have to be vitamins, minerals, botanicals, or other herbs, uh, amino acids, a constituent of any of the above, or a dietary substance for use by man to supplement the diet. If a dietary ingredient was on the market prior to October 15, 1994, it's what we call an old dietary ingredient. Firms are allowed to market adult dietary ingredient as long as they're sure that it's not going to hurt anybody. The technical term is an unreasonable risk of illness or injury. If it's a new dietary ingredient, firms are required to understand whether or not it requires a notification. A notification wouldn't be required if the dietary ingredient is present in the food supply and they don't intend to make a chemical alteration to it when they put it in a dietary supplement. If a notification is required, it has to be provided to the agency 75 days prior to going to market with the new ingredient. It's just a notification. It's not an approval. The agency can't say yes or no to you going to market. They only have the opportunity to agree or disagree with your basis for concluding that your product is reasonably expected to be safe. Once it goes to market, then FDA could decide to take regulatory or enforcement actions based on other provisions of the act, including things like adulteration or misbranding. We've seen a lot of movement in the market lately where folks are taking advantage of the present in the food supply and they are getting grass determinations or self-grass determinations for an ingredient they want to market, and they're, they're going to market on that route rather than file a notification. So, Bob, as you know, the, as a regulator, uh, for as long as you've been doing this, and me being an attorney outside an in industry for, I guess I've been working in this dietary supplement industry for now for about 26 years, the biggest knock on dietary supplements and the ingredients that go in them all the way goes back to selling snake oil off the back of a, of a horse carriage, right? And so the regulatory framework for the dietary supplement industry has gotten us to a point where after this many years, it's been 26 years since that passed, 
we've now reached this point where dietary supplements are companies are being purchased by pharma companies, by biotech companies, very sophisticated, well monetized and well funded entities. Um, that being said, there's, there's sometimes still a stigma that covers ingredients and supplements, either from where they're purchased from, you know, which might be a foreign country, um, or whether someone's playing fast and loose with the regulations in the United States on what they put on their labels. You know, Kevin, I think that's a really astute observation. The, the market right now for dietary supplements seems to be striated in maybe, maybe three different types of companies. You, you have large players that are very sophisticated. Maybe they're a, an affiliate or owned or associated somehow with large pharma. They tend to do things in a very sophisticated way. You have some middle of the ground folks that are you know, somewhat sophisticated. They certainly want to do the right thing. They try to do the right thing when they know what that is. And then you have maybe a bottom straight, a sort of the, the race to the bottom type folks where they're, they're not too worried about the quality of the ingredient they put on the market. They're not very concerned about safety. They're very, you know, they're concerned about uh, getting into the market with the product and turning a buck and then getting out of the market when, uh, when regulatory authorities or plaintiffs attorneys get the scent of them. You know, by and large, I, I think the first two striata, the large companies and the folks that want to do the right thing are the ones that we try to work with, of course, and uh, help them to understand the value of their product. Uh, a trend in recent years of dietary ingredients or natural ingredients being brought to pharma and maybe being developed as a drug. Uh, and the other way around, I mean, there's, there's, there are things that could have been studied as a drug that might have been dietary ingredients that can still be marketed as dietary supplements based on the regulations. Well, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of the ingredients that ended up being in drugs are also some either similar or the same products or ingredients that, that are also in supplements that then evolve into drugs or are uh, chemically synthesized to to go into drugs. And so when you talk about the supplement market, you really aren't that far afield, to be honest with you, as to the way the medical community looks at administering drugs with a regimen of supplements. So what I have seen in my time is that combination um, of doctors prescribing a drug and then a regimen of supplements to go with it, whether it's for immunity, which of course is very big right now, given the current pandemic we're in. And so when we go to develop IP strategies, um, we do a few things. We look at how is that going to play into the, the company's overall portfolio if they have one, if they're starting one out. What is their goal on the intellectual property front? Are they looking to, how are they looking to monetize their IP? Are they looking to exclude others from the market, which is what a patent gives you the, the sole right to do? They're looking to license technology. Are they looking to get patent pending on their products so they can help with marketing and investment? Um, and potential acquisition. Um, sometimes there's an exit strategy as soon as there's an entry strategy for some companies. The biggest attack that I saw on the dietary supplement industry a few years ago was whether or not products or patents based upon natural products were what they call patent eligible under a statute called 35 USC 101, which relates to your invention having to be eligible to even be patented. And there's a body of case off the Supreme Court that in my opinion is being misinterpreted too broadly uh, to encompass dietary supplement ingredients or dietary ingredients and dietary supplements to say those are just natural things. You put them in your body, they're going to do what they're going to do. And therefore, that's nothing patentable. You just, you're just ingesting it. Um, in fact, a, a client that we represent, Natural Alternatives International, I had a lawsuit that got appealed um, where that exact thing happened to a portfolio of patents to them at the district court level. That was appealed to the federal circuit. And ultimately, what the judges found, they reversed that case, which was very good for the supplement industry 
And in reversing that case, what they came down with was the idea of saying that two components, two dietary ingredients when combined, if they have a synergistic benefit that exceeds them taking them individually, the other side was saying that's not patentable. And of course, the court said, well, now you've gone too far because if, if you go that far, you can't patent drugs anymore. And of course, people have a lot of respect for the patenting of drugs, but they need to realize that that really does spill over into the supplement industry. So that was a significant success, not only for our client, but for the dietary supplement industry, because it would have affected people like Bausch and Lam that do things on uh, macular degeneration and eye health care, uh, Kim and the people that supply these products. Um, it would have permeated every supplement. And then it was also going to go affect pharma because again, there's a lot of overlap between what you use when you're making drugs and what people are naturally ma manufacturing and using for supplements. So when we look at an IP strategy, we address this issue by looking at it first and foremost, but then what we try to do is look at everything around the regulatory landscape that you laid out and said, okay, is there anything there we need to be concerned about when we're looking at how we patent things? And sometimes those that do exist, sometimes you're looking at old dietary ingredients, as you said, some new dietary ingredients and a combination thereof. But our goal as we look at intellectual property is to kind of have your product or your company as the castle and build a mode of intellectual property around it. What we have found over the years is that you kind of need to be working in this industry or have a very good understanding of this industry to effectively pursue intellectual property for companies um, working at a fairly sophisticated level because if not using standard vernacular that have been used forever by patent prosecution attorneys to obtain patents um, isn't going to get you, you know, often what you need out of your intellectual property when you hand it to someone like me to litigate it three years later. And I look at what you have and realize that it's not what you thought it was. And then we also have to bust a, a large myth throughout the community, which is just because you have a patent on your own product that covers your product doesn't mean you can't also infringe other parties' patents um, for a component of that product or a method of how it's being used or something like that. But method of use claims in patents, which is the equivalent of the directions on a suggested intended form of use that you'd see on the back of every label, um, is a direct connection to the regulatory landscape that you talk about when you make label claims. Often when people are making claims as to what dietary supplements are good for, that's driving right out of the science they did to get their intellectual property. To substantiate those claims. So you always have to be cognizant when you're putting claims on your label to make sure you're compliant with the act as, as you refer to it as, but also to make sure that that science that usually you got first and foremost, not for regulatory compliance, but for intellectual property and to substantiate those claims, that those two things match up and you don't go too far in what you say, because some of that science is, can be good for supplements and drugs. I, I think you're right. I think there are a lot of similarities. I mean, Folks usually focus on the differences between drugs and natural alternatives or, or ingredients. There are a lot of similarities. I mean, there's a lot of research right now, just as drugs have become more sophisticated, uh, so too haven't dietary supplements and dietary ingredients. There's a tremendous amount of research and development that goes into dietary ingredients. Folks need to be mindful that as they're doing this, uh, they do it in a proper order, that they don't uh, make the mistake and perhaps accidentally exclude themselves from being in a dietary supplement or food, sort of like CBD is right now. And as they're doing their research, that's not cheap. It's not free. Um, they should be mindful about maybe keeping some of that proprietary, keeping that to themselves, keeping it confidential and a new dietary ingredient notification, while at the same time working with someone like you to make sure that they're 
preserving their rights to exclude other people from that technology or that process and that they preserve their ability to monetize what they've invested in. We try to work with folks at the front end when they're getting ready to, to do some research into an ingredient or bring an ingredient to market, that they're doing the right thing as a dietary ingredient or a dietary supplement. The material and the data they develop can be utilized maybe for you know, an IND or something else down the road, but at the same time that they're doing things in the right order and they're securing their ability to go to market as a dietary ingredient, a dietary supplement, a, a food ingredient, and then later go to market as maybe an API, get an IND, an NDA, and then be an API in a pharmaceutical. It's important to be mindful from the start that you don't do things early on that may interfere with your options or limit your options down the road. Uh, there's a lot of research right now going on to dietary ingredients that have been on the market for a long time. Folks are starting to look at some of these uh, ingredients, some of these compounds, and understanding that you know, their biologic activity, their biologic actions are, are sometimes more than what we just realize as a dietary ingredient. If you concentrate them a little bit, or if you alter the, the ingredient a little bit, you could wind up with something that is more suited as a drug. They, they want to conduct these researches oftentimes, you know, maybe, maybe initially just to get some, get some new substantiation for their ingredient. They don't want to have an IND, but they'd like to be able to use that data to support an IND sometime down the road. They want to be able to go through an IRB with, with their justification of their proof of concept for why a dietary ingredient should be studied as a drug. Where they're doing all these things, they have to keep an eye down the road for future decisions and options they might have. And they want to be sure first to not limit their options, but then also to preserve their right to monetize their own investment up front. Well, and certainly with, uh, with COVID-19, we are seeing people flock to certain types of supplements, certain categories relating to immune support, immune boosting products. I think people... Uh, are going to stop talking about living healthier at some level in supplements. I think they're actually going to start um, not taking their multi-day vitamin for, you know, one day a week, and they'll actually start taking the, you know, regimen of supplements. And I think at that point, you need to make sure you're taking efficacious doses of them. But what I, I heard Dr. Fauci say something on uh, TV the other night, talking about testing, about COVID testing. Now, he was putting it in the context of testing for coronavirus. But I believe what you're going to find is personalized medicine has been an increase in this industry and where I see the bridge between biotech companies, pharma companies, and their interest in supplement companies. And I think right now, while we all go to the doctor and have blood work done and someone calls and says your vitamin D level is low, you should start taking a certain amount of milligrams of vitamin D. I think you pair that with what I hear Dr. Fauci saying about in-home testing, right? But what he would love to do is make it where no one had to go anywhere to get a test. They'd be able to do that at home, right? So I, I believe what you're going to start to see is a combination of intellectual property start to ride up around the idea of personalized medicine, in-home testing relating to your general wellness, not just a specific virus. So people can start to do a lot of this stuff at home. I think uh, uh, teledoc visits are going to become much more normal and, and part of the, the daily scheme as opposed to driving 15 minutes to your doctor. So from an intellectual property standpoint, we're doing a lot of advice to clients on personalized medicine, taking old ideas and, and kind of reinventing them, if you will, um, with new technologies, because certainly delivery systems are a new technology and how those supplements, that regimen of products goes into your body, maybe throughout the day, throughout the week or, or over time. And then how you can also monitor your own general wellness and health, as opposed to the way people do it now, look in the mirror, step on the scale. 
um, it'll start to go kind of a different direction. One of the things you mentioned originally were this concept of new dietary ingredients, which you kind of described. The landscape form for which you and I do a lot of work in this, in this area. The way I look at a new dietary ingredient is there is the submission to the FDA, which you discussed, you, you submit something to the FDA. But then there is the other side, which is enforcement, which many articles recently with you and I talking about the FDA's lack of enforcement in that area and that being an exclusive right. So when I hear that a new dietary ingredient acknowledgement for an ingredient is an exclusive right, that is very similar to an intellectual property right. And if I understand right, it's, there's two sides to the coin of an NDI submission. Could you just briefly describe the two areas that are really submitted to FDA for their consideration? Sure. I mean, essentially a new dietary ingredient notification breaks down into two parts. Uh, the first part would be sort of a chemistry-like section where you talk about the you know, the identity of your ingredient or your product of commerce. You talk about how you're going to make it, how you're going to make it consistently over time in the same way each time, how the manufacturing process is safe. I mean, differences in the manufacturing process, slight alterations or, or different, you know, different ways of making this, what you think would be the same ingredient could, wise up, could wind up creating hazards, could wind up introducing risks into a product. So a very important part of the, the new dietary ingredient notification is the, the chemistry or the chemistry manufacturing and control section. The other part of the, the notification is basically a, what's referred to as a safety narrative. And a safety narrative can be based on a you know, history of use somewhere in the world that uh, quantitatively and qualitatively relates back to your, your product of commerce or your ingredient. It's also based off of other evidence of safety. And other evidence of safety has come to mean things like preclinical or clinical information. Um, there's no magic formula as to whether history of use or you know, how much history of use or how much preclinical or clinical data do you need for your notification. Theoretically, you could base it completely off of history of use. Although in that case, I would argue that you likely don't require a notification. Or you, you could base it off a combination of history of use and preclinical and clinical data. So from an, from an intellectual property standpoint, based on what you said, where we focus on usually in looking at new dietary ingredient submissions and acknowledgements from the FDA is, is primarily on identity of who's making it and the manufacturing process um, as far as some of the strongest claims you can get out of there if you control the manufacturing process or get access to it. And then also the compositions and then the methods of use you know, that result from those. And I'll tell you as patent litigator, one of the things that we find in court um, that often has to be addressed, and, and this is why I say obtaining patents and what you say is very important, is the words that you use to describe your inventions are what are going to benefit or hurt you in court years later when you're actually trying to enforce it against someone infringing your patent. And, and, and the dietary supplement industry probably provides you with the best examples of how those words can be used against you. So when people are getting inventions on a dietary supplement, they might file patents using words like pharmaceutically effective, um, pharmaceutically active, therapeutically active, things like that. Sure. Those kind of words don't take them out of being potentially a dietary supplement. Something can be a supplement can still be equivalent of pharmaceutically effective. But using those words, when we get into court under a process called claim construction, is often used against supplement companies because they say, well, wait a second, wait a second. Based on what the FDA tells us you're allowed to do with a supplement, you're using pharmaceutical language. So this must be a drug, right? Um, so instead, we might say a nutritional supplement that does something, or we would use words 
that are more consistent actually with FDA regulations in our patent applications to get claims on them. So there is no, there is no um, concern when we get to claim construction in court three, four, five years later about what we're fighting about. So we're able to easily say, no, Your Honor, the preamble in this patent says a human dietary supplement that does the following or that comprises the following. So we spend a lot of time watching some of the words we say, but the thing that gets used against parties in court the most is not necessarily IP law. It's become an area of IP law. It's really looking at what FDA calls a drug versus a supplement and what language FDA has imparted upon us that has bled into intellectual property law when it comes to obtaining patents and then enforcing them. Sure. That makes absolute sense. As we said earlier, you know, dietary ingredients, dietary supplements are becoming more and more sophisticated. Our understanding of, of what they do in the body is becoming more and more sophisticated. You're starting to see structure function claims that are really talking about very sophisticated ways of affecting the structure and function of the body, doing a, a certain thing, a, a certain um, support or maintaining of the immune system right down to the white blood cell level or, um, you know, facilitating the, the structure and the integrity of mitochondria. These claims are all substantiated by research that's gone into these ingredients or research that's become be understood about these ingredients when they were being studied as drugs. So you're, you're going to find a lot of information in folks' administrative record and the data that they're using to substantiate their claims and the data that they're using to substantiate um, their safety or not their effectiveness, because that's not a word we use with dietary supplements, but you're going to start to see a lot, lot more uh, information and language that sounds more drug-like as we get more sophisticated in, in how we think about supplements. Right. Bob, one topic that we haven't touched on yet is, of course, something that everyone's talking about, which is the cannabis CBD space, um, which has essentially permeated society as far as not just in one industry, it's across several industries. It impacts the supplement industry, the pharmaceutical industry, retail, banking, payment processing systems, real estate. There's, there's no part of it that it doesn't, that it doesn't touch. Um, and I think as a lawyer that's been out in the industry, talking to someone now who's a former regulator, but um, was at the FDA when all this started coming in in waves, is that it seemed to me that this industry grew up very quickly and then came to FDA pressing for guidance or, or regulatory scheme. To be honest with you, even on the outside as an industry lawyer, I thought it was extremely fast, how, how fast it grew, how fast investors got involved. Um, I, was, I was really shocked by that. Um, you were inside the agency when this tsunami hit, if you will. I mean, what was that like and, and what do you see that um, turning into? Back before the Farm Bill was even signed, we were seeing products into the market with CBD as ingredients. Um, they weren't quite as bold back then with some of the claims they were making. It seemed once the Farm Bill was signed, uh, you, you said, right, it was a tsunami. It was just a tidal wave of, of products that hit the market. I think it caught a lot of folks at the agency off guard. Um, we certainly expected something to happen, but the, the scope, the magnitude was just really, uh, I think, beyond what anyone truly thought was possible. Um, and then as time went on, even though they were on the market in a violative way, folks still became more emboldened and started to make some really ridiculous claims about CBD. And that's where you saw the agency put uh, a lot of its resources and a lot of its intention was towards those products that claim to cure cancer or Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or stop seizures. 
I think we all suspect that CBD does do some of those things. Um, look at epidiolysis, that's partly what it's indicated for. But still, those aren't proper claims for something that's labeled as a, as a dietary supplement. The crux of the matter is the way that CBD um, runs afoul of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act is because of, of 201-FF3B and 301-LL. Uh, essentially, it's, an approved, it's approved as a drug. And it's also, the other way it could, could run afoul of those, those sections is it was studied uh, under an IND with significant clinical investigations that were made public. And, you know, FDA is aware of an IND. It's the one for Epidiolex. I forget the exact date. But uh, no one's been able to show to this point that CBD was on the market as a food or a dietary supplement before the date of that IND. An interesting thing to talk about with CBD is I'm not sure that other products on the market that contain CBD, some of these broad spectrum or full spectrum extracts, I'm not certain that each of those is excluded from the definition of a dietary supplement or from being added to food for the same reason that CBD itself is. You know, the theory that the agency's relying on to, you know, use Epidiolex's IND to exclude everything that contains CBD from being in a food or a dietary supplement is, is probably based on outdated precedent. Um, there's likely there's strong justification that each individual extract that contains CBD um, short of a CBD isolate, but each of those extracts requires its own specific de novo evaluation for uh, whether or not it, it should be excluded. Uh, and I think we're going to see see that happen in the future where folks are going to challenge the FDA for that. It has brought a lot of attention, as we were speaking earlier, about the way that folks study or conduct investigations for their ingredients and how they have to be careful. Um, they don't want to win the race and exclude themselves from from being a dietary ingredient because of the way they've studied their you know, their, their thought process, their, their theory about an ingredient um, requires some forethought and some planning. So the way the, the, the path this has gone down, I think the part that confuses and, and frustrates um, actually all industries that we've gotten, you and I are on the phone every day with CBD companies who are dealing with CBD related issues across industries. I mean, I, the amount of things um, at ADG that we get pulled into um, to talk about with clients, whether it's a, you know, retailer saying, what happens if I let a, a business in a mall that, uh, you know, I lease that space and they, uh, they sell CBDs? What happens if the FDA comes and takes them down? What's the impact of that? What's the impact of me having something that is technically illegal under the law being sold in my, you know, in, in a place where I have a lot of con contract language that says I'm not supposed to be doing that? What happens to um, chief risk officers at banks that look at this stuff and say, and payment processors are like, at some point, these are merchants and there's a lot of them, but how do you onboard something that is, you know, we keep using the word illegal. And so um, usually non-criminal lawyers uh, don't have to start every conversation off with a client that says, so we're going to start with the fact that everything we're going to talk about here is illegal. Right. Um, it's, it's, it's a little bit foreign to have to do that. And then you have clients having to admit it, which is almost like, you know, they almost feel guilty when they have to say it out loud. But where we go from there. And so, as I understand it, it's been reduced or changed on the Controlled Substance Act. It's no longer legal under Controlled Substance Act, right? Correct, as long as certain requirements for THC content are met. Right, which which that level is 0 0.03 by dry weight. Tenths of a percent on a dry weight basis, yeah. On a dry weight basis. But the problem really is, is that the FDA because of the time they're taking to come up with their own guidance documents and do their own evaluation to make sure that this stuff is safe. It's the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act that it still violates. Is that correct? 
Correct, it does. And it's, it, you know, it is a really strange conversation as we counsel these folks that are in the CBD space that, you know, first off, we have to say, you're, you're violative, you're breaking the, you're violating the act, right, just by being on the market. But if you're going to do that, let's make sure we don't do anything else wrong. You want to make sure that everything else is right. And I don't know that a lot of firms, I, I think, again, a lot of firms are just in the market to make a quick buck and get out. They're not worried about the wholesomeness of their product. They're not worried about the details and following the rest of the regulation. FDA sent a report to Congress not too long ago where, um, you know, essentially they found that a lot of the stuff on the market, what, what's in the bottle doesn't match what's on the label. They found a lot of it was contaminated with things like heavy metal and, um, you know, maybe even some pesticides. Some of the products even contained uh, concerning levels of THC. So while you have some folks that are on the market with technically a violative product trying to do everything else right. You have another group of folks that are on the market and they just, they don't really uh, have much regard for the rest of the act in general. You know, it's, it's interesting that this paradigm of it still being non-compliant with the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act has had a, a different impact when it comes to intellectual property. At some level, it has stifled some innovation, uh, to be quite honest with you. Some companies, especially larger, maybe more publicly traded companies who have a whole bunch of other requirements than a private a private company about disclosures and what they're working on, um, have sat on the bench waiting and waiting for FDA to do something uh, definitive, not just, you know, why don't we think about it for a while? And here's a guidance document and let's think about it for a couple of years and get back together. They're, these guys are not doing stuff. And because of that, they're not out there innovating. They're not, they're not doing studies, which to be honest with you, everything should be science back here. They should be doing these studies. They're not working with universities. Um, who have, you know, the kind of food centers and other kinds of um, incentives to do this kind of work. Professors uh, are always looking for grant money. Tech transfer offices and all these universities are always looking to out-license that technology and make money for universities. So it's actually having an economic impact from the intellectual property side that I think is gone unnoticed by some, not others, but, I, but certainly, you know, the FDA isn't always worried about Patents, they might be worried, they might want innovation in, um, in things or be supportive of it, maybe is the best way to say it. But it's not their job, of course, to regulate whether someone gets patents and, and goes out and does anything that's innovative. I can tell you it's had a really interesting effect at the Patent and Trademark Office. So I've done presentations in the past where I can date back um, patents on CBDs and cannabis back to the mid 80s being done by pharma pharmaceutical companies for various reasons. I think 85. Um, Bristol Myers, a lot of companies. Um, so patents around cannabis and CBDs has been have been around for 25 years. Ironically, the trademark office recently come out with something that says, because a trademark which attaches with it goods and services and goodwill, you cannot get trademarks right now on dietary products that are deemed to be or or, or in the class that encompasses dietary supplements which is generally class five. That's caused a lot of interesting things to happen in the trademark world where brands right now are somewhat, some of the ways that you're able to go about differentiating yourself from other companies. Um, sometimes, with, especially with the various formulations with CBDs of tinctures and things like this, where they all look the same. So you've got to do something to differentiate yourself. Trademarks and brands and brand awareness is often a large part of the game in, in any industry. But right now, the way the trademark rule reads is when it's violative of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, you're really not supposed to be getting trademarks on it. Now, there are a series of design arounds to still enhance your brand through trademarks and other classes of services, state registrations, a couple of other unique 
strategies that we've come up with uh, in looking forward though, because we can deal with what's in front of us now, but then we have to look forward as to, okay, what's going to happen. So if we are looking at intellectual property from that standpoint, because now you, I mean, the interconnection between IP and, and FDA and regulatory schemes are one leads right on top of the other or, or right next to each other. You cannot do one without the other effectively or usually, or you're trying to use one to bolster the other. So in looking forward at the landscape of CBDs and let's just say the FDA, where do you think that goes? You know, that's a great question. There's, there's been a uh, proposed guidance document or enforcement discretion document at OMB for a while now. Uh, some folks are speculating what that might contain, whether it's uh, an upper limit for CBD, you know, dietary supplements or whether it's uh, something to have to do with, with that as well as, you know, GMPs. Part that I have a problem with, with where we're at with CBD right now is it doesn't seem like there's a path forward with the agency where it doesn't do something special just for CBD. And I think that's a disservice to the rest of the folks that have ingredients on the market right now. You know, if they go out and they require certain standards or certain requirements for CBD products that are in addition to what's already in the act, that in itself is, is wrong. But the only way to make that happen is if they start doing enforcement. And I, I, would I would certainly have some concern if the agency sought to selectively enforce only for a particular ingredient, while, you know, the director of the office himself has said that there are thousands of violative products on the market that should have filed NDIs and haven't. Um, you know, I just, they're talking about special legislation uh, just to carve out a place for CBD in the act when the agency and the secretary could avail themselves of, of the, the part of a 201FF3B that allows for the secretary to bring an excluded ingredient back into the definition of a dietary supplement. So my concern is not that something won't be done, but that something will be done that is just specific to CBD rather than addressing the entire market and addressing the authorities that the agency already has to deal with something like this. No, agreed. And, you know, I was uh, leading a roundtable with the Electronic Transactions Association um, last week and uh, with a lot of financial institutions and payment processing. And we were really talking about how we saw election results playing out um, and, and how a new administration, where you're going to be replacing a lot of um, the folks we've been, we've been listening to as the Secretary of Health and Human Services, head of the FDA, you know, a lot of these positions are going to change. Those are, those are presidential appointments. And so how does this look when we can, if we can do some predicting um, on who those, who's going to have those positions, what is President-elect Biden's position on this? Uh, what is the Vice President-elect's position on these issues as well? And how do we think that's going to drive Congress? How do we think it's going to drive agencies? Sure. And, you know, it's a very interesting thing. There's, uh, and, then, and then also you, have, you get down to the state legislation because I think because of FDA's uh, delay in, in, in coming out with something definitive, the states have kind of had to get out there on their own and come up with their own rules and regulations. Absolutely. You can't blame a state for trying to step into the vacuum and uh, legislate and protect their own citizens when it comes to their health. You know, New York state is the, the most recent that I'm aware of to put their toe in the water. And they, they came out with some proposed rules for CBD containing products. You know, there, there are some great parts of that proposed rule. There's some parts that I, I think are going to have to be worked out on through notice and comment. Um, but I, I did pick up on that New York State seems to have some definitions that are different than other jurisdictions when it comes to things like broad spectrum extracts, full spectrum extracts. Um, they, in a peculiar way, they, they attach the word uh, cannabidiol or cannabinoid. 
when maybe it's 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 too restrictive in some ways and overly broad in others. It's it's just it's been a rush to try to legislate and protect citizens in the vacuum that's been left by FDA. Caused a lot of confusion. Yeah, and you know it's interesting because even if you look at um, uh, Senate Majority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell, he's not going to be someone that's going to be in favor of legalizing marijuana or decriminalizing it, but he's certainly in favor of hemp-derived CBD products. So uh, we, we might find an interesting area of bipartisanship uh, in, in the next Congress, which would be interesting. It'd be refreshing. It, some bipartisanship would be refreshing. Sure. So, you know, from, look, from the intellectual property landscape, um, CBD is um, anybody sitting on the bench on this and wanting to make money in the future at any point in time is exercising they need advice on that because they should be doing this work now. This is, there, there's no reason not to be doing intellectual property on this work unless one reason, and this is what I tell everybody about getting a patent. Don't get one at all, ever, by art, unless you're going to use it because it gives you one right, and that's to exclude others from the market. It's the version, I don't want to call it a legal monopoly because people don't like the word monopoly, but I mean, it gives you exclusivity for a period of time, a long period of time. It's why Coca-Cola has never patented the invention for Coca-Cola because after a period of time, it's no longer just theirs. They have to de- it's dedicated to the public. That's what the patent system is for. However, that being said, the best way to protect yourself in a market like CBDs is to get any IP you can, whether it's on the cannabinoids that you're using, your formulation, whether it's the consumer packaging, whether it's the delivery system, whether it's a combination, a method of manufacturing, extracting is important in that industry. All of these things are areas that people are working on and there needs to be more work on. And they need to understand that pharma is either out in front of them or running right next to them. So sure. if, uh, know, if, we, if we wind up where another cannabinoid or component of hemp is excluded the same way that CBD was, then it's, you know, it's, the wellness industry's own fault. They should have been ahead of the curve. They should have done their, their work. And, you know, I've, the smart ones are relying on CBD to keep the cash flow and to get the market space and their share of the shelf, get the consumer's attention. But the really smart ones are looking at what's, what's the next gift to come from hemp? What's the next component? Uh, CBD is not the only component of hemp. Um, there are others there that have a lot of value. You know, it's, it's almost like if you look at the food industry where chefs talk about using every part of an animal if they can, you know, for cooking, the same is true with hemp. I mean, you can go sure. from the CBD component, cannabis, you can also get down to hemp being used to help make clothing and things like that. All of these things have innovation built into them and people need to be following that because that's how they're going to be able to monetize this and exclude others because you're naturally going to have some people who are out just for a quick buck fall off the train when guidance comes out or they start to get caught by regulatory a reg by FDA or state um, regulatory agencies. That being said, the best, the other best way to do it is through intellectual property um, and dealing with infringement head on the way it is. So I know that one thing that we um, are spending more and more time doing is tracking both federal and state legislation, which is an exercise in hurting cats, to be honest with you. Some states that you would think would be very forward thinking on this or not and vice versa. But I think as we go forward, both the regulatory landscape and then as intellectual property monetizing your IP and getting a significant return on your investment on that is going to be hand in hand. How much election results in the administration affects that or how much just federal agencies do it that, that are always going to be there uh, impact that I think is going to be, is going to yeah, be important. It, it doesn't always matter who is president and who's not president. 
a lot of this is just agency work being done regardless of administrations. I agree. Okay, well, that's all Bob and I have today for today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. 